Anastasia Tuin is a Dakota writer and teacher and activist from southwestern Minnesota that we welcome into our space today. She earned her PhD in American history from Cornell University and has held tenured positions at Arizona State University and the University of Victoria, where she also served as the Indigenous Peoples Research Chair in the Indigenous Governance Program. She's been working for the Upper Sioux's Tribal Historic Preservation Office since 2016, conducting traditional cultural property surveying and monitoring work, and most recently completing the major first draft of a history project for her community that is now in review. She's also the executive director of a Dakota nonprofit reparative justice project supporting Dakota reclamation of homeland that we're gonna hear a lot about today. Committed to sustainability and simplicity, she's been experimenting with these concepts in her personal life. John States, our second speaker for this time, spent 30 years working in program and executive director roles for faith-based agencies where we have probably bumped into each other before and you might know some folks here from some of these other settings including the Dallas Peace Center, the Greater Dallas Community of Churches, Metropolitan Christian Council of Philadelphia, Mennonite Central Committee Central State and Camp Meniska. He now devotes much of his time to his two passions, riding his recumbent tricycle and Native American justice. Minnesota is his home state and Mountain Lake is his hometown. In 2012, his family sold his grandparents' farm near Mountain Lake. Since this was Dakota homeland before white settlement, he donated half the sale amount from his portion to native groups working for land justice. Hence, the relationship was begun between our speakers uh, for this morning. He continues to spend significant time on awareness raising and fundraising among white people about colonization, decolonization, solidarity and reparations. As we prepare for this morning, let us just bring again our whole selves into this space with a couple of deep, deep breaths. Let's go together. And a second breath, letting it out with a sigh. We know that the spirit is here before us, welcoming us here before we even showed up. So this is opportunity and invitation to enter in as we welcome you to this space. Thank you. Hello, my relatives. It's with a good heart that I greet all of you with a handshake. I told you that I am Waziatui in Dakota, that's what they call me in English, that translates as woman of the north. And I come from the place where they dig for yellow medicine. And in English, that place is known as the Upper Sioux Reservation, and it's located in southwestern Minnesota. And uh, before I begin the presentation today, I just wanted to acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, past and present, my understanding is the Duwamish 
claim this area as their ancestral territory, and I want to honor that. And I also want to acknowledge the spirits of uh, all indigenous beings, um, those beings who've lost their lives so that this, uh, this city could be, be here, so that this building could be here, so that you all could be here. All of that came at a cost to indigenous life. And I want to start out by saying, too, uh, the things that we're talking about today are difficult to hear. They're difficult for me to talk about. And there's always strong emotion um, for me. There's sadness, there's grief, and there's a whole lot of rage. And so you'll no doubt feel that, you'll sense that. And I think that those feelings of discomfort are oftentimes the best spaces of learning, the best spaces for growth. And uh, so it's in that spirit that uh, we're engaging this discussion today. And it's intended to uh, provoke thought, um, but not just thought, also to provoke action. Um, because from my perspective, that's the only thing that matters. So this first section, I want to talk a little bit about genocide. And oftentimes when the word genocide is brought up, uh, people think of the Jewish Holocaust or they think of uh, genocides in other places. And many people are uncomfortable with the term genocide or even Holocaust being applied to what happened to indigenous life here in, in the Americas. And so uh, before I begin this conversation about genocide, I want to just to show here the, the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Because when I talk about genocide, um, these are the criteria that I'm using. Um, and I could say uh, with a lot of confidence, I think, that every one of these criteria was met in the context of genocide here in the United States. And I, and I can say with confidence that in terms of my own people's experience, the Dakota people of Minnesota, uh, that we, uh, our experience with the United States government and with American citizens meets every one of these criteria. Um, so I don't know how well, uh, can you read that from the back? Okay. I'm not going to go through each one though. I just want to, um, I just wanted you to understand the definition that I'm using when I talk about genocide. And I want to talk briefly about what happened in the Dakota context. Um, not, well, for a couple of reasons. I guess uh, because it's the, it's the context that is the most real to me. I would say I'm a survivor of genocide, um, but uh, someone who's been damaged, harmed, as a consequence of, of this history and Dakota experience in our homeland. But I also uh, want to share that example with you because it's not particularly unique. In fact, I would say it's quite common uh, of indigenous experience. And I would say that many of the things that our people went through were experienced by indigenous peoples uh, who lived in this area prior to invasion, conquest, and colonization. So in 1862, our people went to war against the United States government and its citizens. And the wars, reasons for the wars are the same 
as the reasons for all wars, um, all defensive wars, I should say. Uh, we were uh, trying to defend our people, our lands, and our way of life. It was that simple. So in 1862, we declared war against the United States government and the citizens who were occupying our land, who were the face of the United States government. And within a few weeks of the start of the war, the governor of the state of Minnesota at that time, Alexander Ramsey, declared before the Minnesota state legislature that the Sioux Indians of Minnesota must be exterminated or driven forever beyond the borders of the state. And what we saw from that time forward was really Ramsey's uh, plan being implemented. How does that happen? How do you remove a people from their homeland? In today's terms, we would call this declaration genocide. We would call it ethnic cleansing. And even though the term genocide was not around at that time, we know in today's um, language, that's exactly what it was. So our war was, uh, we were defeated. And after the war, uh, I would say there were some quite spectacular events that happened. Um, the men were separated from the women and children. They were put through a military tribunal. Originally, over 300 of them were sentenced to execution by hanging, but they were imprisoned. Um, that imprisonment actually lasted four years, and you think about pretty much all our able-bodied warriors being separated from the women and children, and you understand how difficult it is for a population to reproduce. On December 26th, 1862, the day after Christmas, white settlers gathered in Mankato, Minnesota to hang 38 Dakota warriors in what remains the largest mass simultaneous hanging from one gallows in world history. And that was ordered by Abraham Lincoln. So the good white Christians of Minnesota celebrated the birth of their savior Jesus Christ one day and then the next day cheered the hanging of Dakota warriors who were simply trying to defend our people and our land and our way of life. But even this mass hanging wasn't enough to uh, fulfill Ramsey's call for extermination or forced removal. So additional steps were taken. Dakota, the women and children who, were, uh, who had been separated from the male population were forced marched over seven days uh, from the Lower Sioux Agency to this concentration camp site at Fort Snelling. And if any of you have been to Minneapolis, it's right where the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport is located. The fort's right there. It's a sacred site to our people, that whole area. It's a place of our uh, creation story but it's also the place of our genocide. And we estimate that of the, the women and children who were imprisoned in that concentration camp that first winter, we lost about 300 of them. But even that wasn't enough to fulfill Ramsey's call for extermination or forced removal. So our people were forced on boats uh, down the Mississippi River and then up the Missouri River um, uh, and 
put on a, in another concentration camp in South Dakota called Crow Creek. That was in the spring of 1863. The summer of 1863, bounties were placed on the scalps of Dakota people. They started at $25 and by the fall had reached $200. So this was a, a posting from the Daily Republican newspaper in Winona, Minnesota, September 24, 1863. And down at the bottom it says, the state reward for dead Indians has been increased to $200 for every redskin sent to purgatory. This sum is more than the dead bodies of all the Indians east of the Red River are worth. But even that wasn't enough. So in the summer uh, of 1863, uh, punitive expeditions were sent into Dakota territory to hunt down the fleeing Dakota. So um, many of our people were already imprisoned in the concentration camps in South Dakota. Those who'd been on the run, they were tracked down, they were killed, some were imprisoned and then brought to join the others in the concentration camps. Food supplies were destroyed, even cooking utensils, uh, pots and stuff. Uh, holes were punched in them or they were uh, thrown into the bottom of lakes where it would be difficult to retrieve so that the people couldn't prepare food, couldn't eat. It was total warfare. And like I said, our experience wasn't unique. The experience of indigenous peoples in the Americas uh, was uh, similar. It was pretty consistent. It's estimated uh, by more recent scholars, I would say in the last uh, quarter century or so, uh, that there were about 12 to 18 million people north of Mexico by 1776. 1.5 to 1.8 million, depending upon um, the figures you use. Different demographers have slightly different figures. By 1900, when the census was put in place, uh, or where people were counted in the U.S. Census, the number was down to 230,000. Uh, so that's the, I would say, the nadir of indigenous existence in the United States context. So overall, in general, in the Americas, the population decline was about 98%. 98%. That means that 2% survived. Whenever you see indigenous people today, keep that in mind. We're the 2%. Americans are very good at looking at crimes in other parts of the world. Looking at killing, looking at genocide, human rights abuses, ethnic cleansing, very critical of what happens in other parts of the world. But under US watch, an 84 to 87% extermination rate of indigenous people from 1776 to 1900. I don't know of any government in the world that's had those kinds of population extermination figures. So 
So we thought we would do a little exercise in here, and we're not sure how that's going to work out. If all of you can look at your programs, a few of you should have a red star on the back. And let me actually, let, let's have everybody stand up first. Do you still have your programs? All right, everybody who does not have a red star, please sit down. One sole survivor. Sir, can I ask you what you do, what, what your profession is or what your area of skill or expertise is? You teach social work. Now, typically in a group of this size, probably one or two survivors would be about right. How would you feel about trying to maintain or recreate your society based on what you know, your skills, your area of expertise? Thank you. That's what indigenous populations have faced. According to demographer Henry Dobbins, there were a total of 93 serious epidemics and pandemics of old world pathogens among North American Indians from the early 16th century to the beginning of the 20th century. He figures that there was a serious contagious disease causing significant mortality that invaded North American peoples at intervals of four years and two and a half months on the average from 1520 to 1900. So you can imagine a little over every four years you could count on your population being severely reduced, severely declining. When I was in graduate school, um, one of my mentors was a man named Robert ben Venables. He was a historian. And one of the questions that always comes up when we talk about death in the Americas is, well, didn't most of them die of disease? That was unintentional. It was inevitable. It wasn't the fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. Diseases just happened. And my mentor, uh, Bob Venables, he used to ask this question in his lectures. He says, he would say, does it matter that millions of the Indians who perished died of disease and malnutrition rather than by the sword? Are we not to count the Jews who died of disease and starvation and only those gassed or shot? And David Stannard, uh, who's also a historian, uh, addressed this issue in his book, American Holocaust, as well. And if any of you um, haven't had a chance to read it, I would highly recommend it. He says, from almost the instant of first human contact between Europe and the Americas, firestorms of microbial pestilence and purposeful genocide began laying waste to the American natives. Although at times operating independently, for most of the long centuries of devastation that followed 1492, 
Disease and genocide were interdependent forces acting dynamically, whipsawing their victims between plague and violence, each one feeding upon the other and driving countless numbers of entire ancient societies to the brink and often over the brink of total extermination. And so I know certainly in the Dakota context in Minnesota, what we saw was outright killing. You saw that uh, with the hanging in Mankato, you saw that uh, in the time of war, are people uh, being killed by the sword or by guns? But you also saw it in the forced removals, um, in the wintertime being forced march over long distances without adequate food, without adequate clothing, without adequate shelter. The sickness that emerged in those contexts, concentration camp imprisonment, again, not enough food, not adequate shelter, not adequate clothing. People die in a hurry. In the punitive expeditions where, again, there was outright killing, but more uh, effective, I think, was the destroying of the food supplies, keeping people on the run. They can't pack their belongings, their food stores with them, and people starve. And they get sick, and they die. The other point I want to make about this, and uh, this was a com based on a comment by that Elie Wiesel made uh, in his book Night about the Jewish Holocaust. He said, all the killers were Christian. David Stannard, again, makes this point in American Holocaust. All the killers were Christian. If at that point, and I'm thinking after our war, say 1865, 1866, our people had just been left alone, yes, we suffered a severe population decline. Yes, it would be difficult to rebuild. But if we had just been left alone, we would have recovered because our people still had our spirituality, our connection to land, knowledge of the land. But what followed uh, was just the opposite. After the periods of disease and warfare and policies of outright genocide, the assaults on our children began in earnest. And that's what Johnson covered next. 